Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Rob Lambert. Based in Winchester, Rob is uh, Vice President of Engagement and Enablement, Enablement at New Voice Media, a customer contact platform with offices around the world. He also blogs about how to remain a productive manager at cultivatedmanagement.com, and blogs elsewhere on Social Tester and at parentbrain.com, uh, and you can follow him on Twitter at Rob underscore Lambert. Rob is the author of a number of LeanPub books, including The Social Tester, Eight Years' Worth of Thoughts on Software Testing and Hiring Testers, and Ten Behaviors of Effective Employees. Um, he's also co-author of So You Want to Be a Scrum Master, a collection of ideas, thoughts, and learnings from the Agile community at New Voice Media. In this interview, we're going to talk about Rob's background and career, professional interests, uh, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published author and blogger. So thank you, Rob, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for what I jokingly call their origin story. Um, <laughs> I know you do You do have one. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit uh, maybe about where you grew up and how you first became interested in software uh, and testing. Sure. So um, I'm from Sheffield in the north of England. So that's where I grew up. That's where I was born. Um, and I think very early on, um, I was exposed to computers. My dad was a software, well, a computer engineer going around the UK fixing them. So from a very early age, I was doing desktop publishing on old DOS machines and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, that was my sort of origin story with computing. Um, growing up in Sheffield, Steel City is where we used to do all the manufacturing of the steel in the UK. Uh, very industrial city. Um, lots of sort of working class origins. Um, and it kind of led into documentaries, writing, university and college, studied comms and all that sort of stuff. Um, and really, it's always been about publishing. It's always been about uh, taking a message and communicating it. And that's what I studied at college and university. And then from there, um, entered the workplace straight after university, fell into software testing, like most software testers actually do. And um, from there, had a very illustrious career, hopefully. I think that's, uh, I'm kind of proud of what I've achieved in the software testing world. Um, but I think at one point, I wanted to sort of uh, escape from it, I think. I wanted to do something different. Um, the, the companies I worked for were good, but we weren't shipping software very often. And um, the publishing and the blogging side of it was what kept me uh, kind of engaged in it. It kept me there in the industry because it allowed me to use that creativity stuff, the sort of origin story foundations of publishing using computers um, with the blogging. And that's how it all sort of kicked off and started that side. Um, I wasn't planning on asking this question, but um, I remember when I was living uh, in the UK, uh, hearing stories about out-of-work steelworkers, um, and in particular how... I remember speaking to to someone from there, and I was asking sort of somewhat deliberately, naively, why don't they just move on and do something else? And this guy looked at me like I was the biggest idiot. <laughs> and he said, Len, they're steel workers. And I was wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit about, about that aspect of life there and and maybe how things look in Sheffield now. Yeah, I mean, I've not been back to Sheffield for a while, so I moved down south, down to Winchester, probably about 10 years ago now. Um, but certainly when I was growing up, it was during the whole miners' strikes, so there was a very grim sort of feel to the city. Lots of people unemployed. There was a sort of air of, um, I guess, kind of desperation a little bit, sort of like, what are we going to do next? How are things going to happen? And there's a very famous film called The Full Monty, which you may have seen about uh, four out-of-work miners or, or steel workers who decide to go and, and actually 
actually strip in strip clubs for a, for a living to try and make some money. It's a very good film, and it kind of captures, uh, I guess, the essence of Sheffield at the time. Um, you know, lots of unemployment, lots of people, like I say, wondering what to do next. The city uh, trying to regenerate itself, and actually, it's done a really good job. And I'm actually heading back to Sheffield next year for the first time in probably 10, 15 years, and I'm looking forward to seeing how much has changed, just as much as uh, <laughs> you know, kind of been able to describe it. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that answer. Um, uh, you know, when I when I moved to England, you know, the the sort of memories of Thatcher and grimness were kind of ending. It was 1999, <laughs> yeah. and Tony Blair was coming in, and all that kind of stuff. So I, uh, yeah. that, was, I that was there as kind of a legendary past um, that people still, you know, walked around with. Um, yeah, I think the the 90s, obviously, with Tony Blair in the UK was. A kind of great time, really. It was a kind of everybody was positive, optimistic. There was a lot of prosperity, and you kind of felt like you could do anything. You know, the future was 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 there for the taking. You know, mobile phones had just come out, the internet was start kicking off, and it was a it was a a wonderful time to be a university, a wonderful time to be learning about technology and web, which is what I was studying at the time. And yeah, you just felt like you were unstoppable, almost like you know, this is it. We can do anything we want to. Yeah, uh, I remember the excitement around the millennium as well. Uh, <laughs> the banks of the Thames right under the London Eye, which didn't work. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, but it was it was an exciting time. Um, and so did you study programming in university or formally in another setting? No, not at all. So um, at university, I did a, a degree that's called media science. And uh, in a nutshell, it was a science degree. So it was all about, you know, any, anything scientific, really making microprocessors at the time. Uh, we studied a lot of biology. We studied chaos theory, those kind of uh, high level scientific theories. And the goal of the degree was really to take something extremely complicated and communicate it to a number of different audiences. Um, and at the time, I didn't necessarily see the value of the degree. I mean, I wanted to be a film director. So, you know, I wanted to be, you know, the Spielberg from Sheffield kind of thing. Um, but that didn't pan out. Um, but the degree, actually, when I look back at it, was all of the tools that you needed to get into publishing on the Internet. So, you know, we would take something incredibly scientific, like, you know, launching a, a spaceship into space, and we'd be able to uh, write an article for the New Scientist, which was a, you know, big scientific journal. You could use as much jargon as you wished. You could be as elaborate in the way that you describe it as you wanted to. But then we would also take that same concept, that same topic, and have to write that for a tabloid newspaper where you have to use simpler languages, you have to use more visuals, explain things. Um, we did word processing, we did desktop publishing, it was the early rise of the CD-ROM, so we were in Microsoft, uh, and what was it called, Dreamweaver and all those sorts of tools, um, building websites using those sorts of tools, what you see is what you get publishing. Um, so yeah, it was really taking something very scientific and communicating it through video, through podcasts, through audio, through all sorts of different stuff, well before it was trendy to do that. And, you know, um, I think that was what was interesting, you know, the science side of it, science degree. Um, but actually, we did sociology, communications, and all the other things that's helped me no end in, you know, writing books, blogging, speaking at conferences, and the stuff that I just thought, you know, this is going to be not very useful in my career, but actually, it turned out to be fabulous. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I've got some questions um, about that that I'll be asking a little bit later. Um, you, you mentioned cool. that you you fell into testing, and I was wondering if you could talk. And as 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 testers often do, and I was wondering if you could talk about what your experience was. I've spoken to some other testers on this podcast and heard their stories, and I'd like to hear yours too. So yeah, when I finished university, I had no idea uh, what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a film director. I wanted to get into media, but unfortunately, the media industry as a whole um, wasn't very big up north, um, Sheffield and Leeds. Um, there weren't a great deal of jobs. The jobs they did have weren't very well paid at all. I had a student loan. You know, I had things I needed to to sort of clear down and pay down. So um, I moved with my girlfriend up to Leeds, and uh, we rented a little property up there. And there was a job down the road for a software tester. I had no idea what it was, um, but I went ahead, took it. It turned out to be a really good job working for a very large IT company that produced school software. And I was testing uh, timetable software, school planning software, all sorts of very, very good company, uh, lots of good products. And that's how I fell into software testing. It just felt like a good job to take. You know, and uh, previous to that, I was delivering snacks around Lincolnshire in a van. So, you know, this was a very big move, different move, and it was a, a very positive one. And I stuck, yeah, with software testing probably for about three or four years before I started to really think that there's a better way of building software than this. And, yeah, maybe we... Was it software, the education software, was it, was it for children? It was for schools. So this was for school administrators and teachers. So, you know, for example, a teacher's putting together your end of year report. They can use boilerplate text and we can fill in your name and they can drag sentences around to create a school report. Um, or the teachers would be timetabling students for the next year. So there would be a timetabling system um, to make sure there's no clashes, get all the students studying the right uh, topics, etc. So it was really more for school administrators, heads and teachers. Okay, I was just curious because I'd never thought about what the difference might be between testing something for adults and testing something for children, um, and uh, in, in in fact, how that you know might have changed over the past, let's say, ten years or so, as children get introduced to more sophisticated products at a younger and younger age than they may have in the past. Yeah, I think so. And I think that the products now are obviously clearly more intuitive. Um, you know, back then, these were all desktop thick clients and, you know, not a lot of networking going on. What networking there was was a little bit shady and, and maybe not quite as secure as it should have been. Um, so, yeah, I think nowadays with kids, I've got three boys and they just pick up tablets and they just they go for it. They pick up the laptop and everything just seems um, a lot more intuitive. But I think kids nowadays are becoming a lot more tech savvy. Um, in fact, I'll never, I'll never forget the time I uh, took my middle kid, Ben, down to the local supermarket. And there was an advert outside, one of these big adver advertising boards, a digital one. And it was rolling around. It was kind of like a scrolling screen. And he went up to it and put his hand on it and swiped up just at the same time as the picture changed. And he thought he'd done it. And he thought this was just some sort of giant iPad. And he, everything was just touchscreen. He's touching every screen, everything. And, you know, some stuff works, some stuff didn't. And that's just intuitive. It's just the way that they're wired, really. Speaking of um, children and parenting, um, you have a project called Parent Brain and a book. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that because you, you frame the inspiration for the book with a story about a transformation that happened to you. Uh, when you became a parent? Yeah, it's called the baby effect. And, you know, most people, I think at some point when they have children go through this, it's, it's this kind of realization that this small bundle of joy is relying on you. 
Um, you know, for me, it manifested itself in this, you know, stop playing video games, stop burning your evenings doing pointless things on the internet and actually, you know, start creating something, start making yourself employable. And I think this, what this harps back to Sheffield and growing up and seeing the, the raft of unemployment and, you know, redundancies in the family left, right and center. And, and I've always had this thing where I didn't want that to happen to me. So I think when, when my first son, Ollie was born, I think it was kind of, you know, wow, I need to sort of grow up a little bit here. I need to start earning a bit more money, doing something more with my career and making myself basically hireable, remaining relevant and constantly employable. And since then, that's been the theme that, that's gone through everything. And the, the parent brain book, the employable parent brain, is really that same thing. It's about, you know, take that baby effect and drive it, use that energy and that enthusiasm to make yourself more employable. And I think that really the catalyst for parent brain was I was uh, – on one of the parent forums and there were highly qualified, super talented parents with great education, great experience, great skills, and, and they couldn't get jobs. They just could not get back into the job market. And it got me thinking about why, why is that? And, you know, there's some problems with, you know, uh, companies not embracing flexible working and all the other stuff. But there's also this inability, I think, for people to, to sort of articulate what it is that they add value. And the world is shifting constantly, and that value is no longer in your job title. It's no longer in your qualifications. It's in how you can create and, and the value that you can bring to a business, and that needs articulating. And very few people have the skills or the energy or actually the realization that I think that's kind of the future of work. You have to show you can do good, interesting, valuable stuff. It's interesting. I'd, I'd noticed that theme um, in your work when I was preparing for this interview. And um, one of the things I think I'm just sort of putting it together, but one thing that was striking that I found in your description of the Parent Brain project was um, you weren't shy about talking about laziness. Um, <laughs> and you pull it off in your description uh, very well without sounding, you know, just like a, a grumpy person you know, from a, an elevated standpoint, criticizing people. It was sympathetic, but it was also very straightforward. It was like one of the problems you can fall into in life, whether you're employed or not, whether you've got children or not, is uh, being unproductive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and unproductive, not necessarily in the sense of wasting time on the internet, which can make you feel like you're doing something, but really just being lazy. Um, mm. And uh, do you talk about that in the book? Um, and what, what you can do to kind of get yourself out of that hole if you've fallen into it? Yeah, I mean, getting out of the hole is really, it, you need the purpose. And for me, the purpose was the baby effect. You know, this was my son relying on me. You know, that that was the inspiration and the drive and the purpose that I needed to, you know, stop playing video games and stop messing around. And, and I think it is easy. It's, certainly with the internet, like you say, you can get stuck in the rabbit holes of reading articles and thinking and, you know, consuming so much stuff that you don't actually create anything of value. And, and I think, you know, the, the whole links with people being unhappy when they're on social media and all that sort of stuff is very real. And I've seen it myself firsthand. Um, and so, yeah, in, in the book, it's really you need to find the purpose. You know, why are you doing what you're doing? And if you're super happy spending your evenings playing video games, great. That's awesome. You know, that's your life. Everybody, you know, does whatever they want to do. And that's great. But I think if you want to take your career seriously, you have to put in the effort outside of the work. 
And I think what a lot of people, certainly when I've been uh, speaking around uh, around the world in the sort of tech industry, a lot of people assume that their employers are going to look after them and they assume that the training is going to get given to them and that they assume that they're going to have a job for life and, and that's just not true at all and very few people actually achieve that and I think those that find themselves on the job market surprisingly are often woefully unprepared for it and really that's my mantra is you know just keep slowly but surely making yourself better and employable every single day. And one thing you talk about that's very concrete is um, adding skills. Um, yeah. You keep adding skills to your uh, uh, repertoire um, and don't necessarily be concerned with being the very best at something. Yeah. I think it was a talk you gave that I saw on YouTube where you talk about the um, creator of the cartoon Dilbert, mm. who's now become quite famous because, well, he of course, he was already famous, but he's now famous for... <laughs> explicitly predicting Donald Trump's victory. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you, in your talk, you talk about how he says that one path to success is to be the very best at what you're doing. That's, and you sort of humorously with a sort of dry wit say, that's the hardest way to do it. Um, <laughs> but you talk about how there's another way to do it. And you, you learned about it from this um, creator of Dilbert. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that alternative path to success yeah i have this this sort of thing in my head where uh, every so often i wish i was more specialist in something and you kind of look at people that have gone down the expert route and, and it's the harder route to go down it's years and years of training and working um, and generally speaking the opportunities become less and less until you become the best in the world and then you can set your own price and you've always got work and probably very meaningful career but for most people the value comes from having enough skills in enough areas to mash that together to create a very unique value the challenge with that, though, one of the problems with that is how do you articulate that value? And one of the things recently, I know you started the podcast saying I'm the VP of New Voice Media, but I sort of since left there. I've, it's been about six weeks now since I've moved on. And having spent the last year and a half in HR and, and parts of engineering management and testing, it's, it's dawned on me how difficult that is to actually articulate the value that you add because you've got all these different skills. I'm not a HR specialist, but I'm also not this and not that. I'm all of these things. And the more you speak to people, the more you realize everybody has sort of a fairly broad set of ideas and enthusiasms and, and um, skills. And it's just a case of working out which ones they need to sort of work on a bit more, which ones they need to sort of mash together and bring it all together into a very unique package um, and then be able to articulate that to somebody who has a problem that you can solve. And I think the skill, skill, skill thing is a, is a, a model that suits the way I work. Um, but I do think you do need to have that core specialism. I mean, are you familiar with the T-shaped? Um, so this is from IDEO. This is the sort of T-shaped employee. Thanks to watching your talk on YouTube. <laughs> but yeah, if you could talk about that, that would be great. Yeah. So, I mean, there's this various different shapes. People argue with the T-shapes, but essentially you're talking about having a core skill, which is something that you are extremely good at, extremely skilled at. You spend years honing this craft and that's the center of the T. It's like the tall bit, you know, the bit that goes basically vertical. And then the horizontal T across the top, imagine a capital letter T. 
they're the series of different skills that you acquire that allow you to be able to talk to people in marketing or actually do bits of teaching. And if you think about it from, from my perspective, it's, it's kind of as a tester, engineering manager, growing big, scaled agile teams. That's my kind of core skill. The bit across the top is HR, uh, public speaking, writing, blogging, all the different things. And when you mash all of that together, you become a very unique and hopefully valuable employee. But also you have a lot of fun because you're learning lots of different things and you're bringing it all together and seeing how you can resonate and get those things to gel and, and form into something and create something that's never existed before. So for me, it suits me, but I know a lot of people that it just, it terrifies them and, and they just want to be the best at one thing. And, and that's fabulous as well. You know, whatever works for you. I was just going to say when I first heard about it in your talk about the T-shaped person, that what it invoked for me was the Christian cross and crucifixion. Um, and so when you, say, <laughs> when you say that for some people it's torture, that, I'm sort of sympathetic to that because that was just the first thing that occurred to me. Um, that, that, that was where you were going to go. Um, uh, and so you eventually did, as, as you've mentioned a couple of times, you moved into HR. Um, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Um, how did you make that transition? Um, so it was a, one of these fortuitous moments where everything sort of came together. Um, but when I joined New Voice Media about nine years ago, there was nine people in the engineering team. And I was the only software tester. So together with the engineering manager and obviously the people of the dev team, um, we built a very high-performing agile function. Um, scaled it to about 120 or different people across UK and Poland and went through the engineering manager and I was starting to get really bored. I was starting to, you know, things were going fairly well. Obviously, there's always things to improve. And I wasn't sort of doing that dynamic, chaotic sort of team building stuff, the stuff that I thrive on, the sort of chaos of getting people aligned around missions and stuff. And what we'd also achieved is we'd achieved a very interesting set of numbers, really. So all engagement numbers were very positive for the DevOps team. So people were very happy. People felt engaged. They had meaningful work. They didn't leave very often, which is great. And we had a very smooth hiring process, and um, our recruitment costs were rock bottom. Basically, we were getting more referrals than we were paying for agencies, which was great. So all of those numbers are very positive, and so the opportunity arose to try and do some of those same things across the bigger business, and that was the sort of engagement and enablement, which was really about training. It was about getting people the opportunities to progress their career and getting the information flowing around the business and make sure those departments were talking to each other. So I did that for probably about a year, year and a half. And yeah, I took the plunge about five or six weeks ago to go off on my own and set up my own consultancy. So there we go. Well, I'd definitely like to ask you about that in a little bit. Um, but uh, I had a couple of specific things about your experience with HR that I wanted to ask you about. Um, one of which is the interview process, which is something mm. I just find fascinating. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you've landed on what a good interview process is. Let's let's sort of scope it to your building an agile team of developers and, and testers mm. and, and such to deliver products, let's say within within a big company. How would you go about recruiting and interviewing people? It's funny you should say that, actually, because I do actually have another book coming out soon, um, maybe on the Leanpub platform. We'll talk about that. <laughs> um, so I think really for me, um, there's a few things to consider. So there's, there's quite a few assumptions with hiring. 
And some of the assumptions that I have, these are the, the kind of values and principles that I hold dear, are that it is all about a two-way conversation. It's not us looking for them and we get to choose. It's not them deciding where they want to go. It's both of those things. And I think what you find in some recruitment uh, processes is the business don't care about the candidates at all. So it's all about us. You'll do what we want. We'll make it as difficult as we need to. We won't get back in touch with you. And it's, it's not a very nice experience. I also believe in hiring very, very slowly. Um, I also believe in hiring for good cultural fit and good technical fit. Both of them are super important, along with all the other stuff that sits around it. The 10 behaviors of effective employee is essentially what we're looking for here. But then we also believed in making sure the experience was unbelievable. So, so positive, as positive as we could make it, that people would uh, welcome going through the process. They would also come out the other side going, wow, that was really hard, but I enjoyed it. And interestingly, in doing those things, what we found is people that went through the process and didn't make it would go off and tell their friends and colleagues about how awesome it was and that you should apply that. And that was just bizarre. We were not expecting that at all. Um, so what does it look like? I mean, in a nutshell, we want to go from first contact to you to making a decision in about two to three weeks maximum. There's only ever going to be the one interview face-to-face, but before that, probably a good phone screen technical exercise for coders and then when you come in if you've done the technical exercise we probably ask you to extend it change our requirements just to make sure that you wrote it and it wasn't a friend of yours and then what we'll do is work out why you're doing it so why are you writing the tests why are you coding in that way the phone interview at the start is really just about are you going to be a good fit you know this is a society it's a culture everybody that comes to it needs to add to that culture and one of the things I learned as a manager for five or six years of managing engineers and managing HR, anybody really, is that it's much easier to hire people who live and breathe a similar set of values to your business than it is to hire somebody who's awesome but doesn't agree with your values and then try and change them. You can't change people. So it's much easier to try and get the right people coming through the door at the first point. And moving all the way through that process is really, you know, from that first phone call all the way through to making a decision as quick as possible. And the interview process is hard. It's going to be maybe three or four different sections, an hour, an hour and a half each. So you're looking at maybe three, four, five, not five, but probably about four is the maximum we've ever done really an interview for. It's pretty tough. You get to meet all those different people and all of those people get together after the interview and make a decision. If somebody says no, then everybody else can try and persuade them and say, really, let's look at the facts and the details. But fundamentally, anybody any one of those interviews has the ability to veto that candidate. And we've probably, you know, not hired some great people because of that. You know, we've lost some good candidates because one person didn't enjoy it, didn't resonate or something. But it keeps the bar really, really high. And it makes it incredibly hard to join. And in doing so, you actually attract people that want to work with really great people. And so, yeah, in a nutshell, always be designing that service. It's a service like anything else. It's like onboarding a customer. It's exactly the same. So you look at, you know, what is the bare essentials you have to have? You know, what is everyone else doing? And then what can you do differently that adds that kind of wow factor to it? It's really interesting. I've heard that um, particular uh, tactic of uh, giving everyone on the team an absolute veto from people before. um, And it resonated with me with something else you said, which is about the the theme of making through the recruitment process, actually making your workplace an attractive place for high performing mm. people to be. Yeah. 
because as frustrating as it can be when you're applying for a job and, you know, arbitrarily someone who doesn't like the cut of your jib um, can prevent you from getting it. Um, if you're applying to places like that and you do get into one, um, you know, that's, that's an ideal outcome. Yeah. Not just yeah. because you're going to know that you went through that, but you'll know that everyone there thought about it and chose you. Mm. Um, and, uh, again, as it gets as difficult as looking for work can be in so many different ways, um, that kind of process really can, you know, as you say, like make you optimistic about what your next opportunity yeah. are. And as you go through it, you get better and better at the process yourself. And so difficult, yeah. difficult in this sort of gen good sense of difficult interview processes yeah. are good for you. I mean, people are doing you yeah. a favor by, uh, putting you through them as well. Um, I think one of the things that, that we always focus on, I think this is the kind of management style that, that I've sort of adopted and, and is the basis of cultivated management really is um, it's all about behaviors. So the interview process is very much about behaviors. Um, one of the things we found early on is people would put all sorts of stuff on their CV. They sounded awesome. And then you'd meet them and it was like, really, have you done any of this stuff? And, you know, it's very easy to recite books, to recite other people's opinions. It's very difficult um, during an interview process to explain why things didn't work. You know, why didn't Scrum work? Why didn't Kanban work? Why did that approach not work? And what we always try to do through the whole exercise is tie it to behaviors. And those behaviors, if you think about the culture of a business, the culture of a business is nothing more than group habit. It's what people do every day. So if everybody's late for meetings, that's your culture. You have a culture of being late for meetings. And so we worked early on, and, and this is where the 10 behaviors came from, to look at our top performers and go, well, what do they do? You know, what behaviors do they have, not what languages do they use, not, you know, how good they think they are at coding or testing or Scrum Master, but what do they actually do? What behaviors do they do? And they are the behaviors that we try to weave into the job adverts, into the phone interview, into the whole interview process to try and work out whether this person by default demonstrates the behaviors that we think contribute to a positive culture. That doesn't mean to say that we don't seek at all the diversity and the conflict of ideas and people that think differently, of course, but they must do that in a way that demonstrates positive behaviors, you know, not confrontational, none of this hero worship sort of, you know, hero grade developers that nobody likes, none of that sort of stuff. That's not how you build a good team. And so that's the whole process. So really, when we when we look at the, you know, do you make it or not, it's whether you have demonstrated those behaviors. Speaking about managing, um, I came across uh, on your cultivatedmanagement.com website a post called How Do You Manage Millennials? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I confess, when I, the, the very split second that I saw the title, I was like, oh, no, I'm familiar with this genre. And I was very pleased when I looked into it and saw what your answer was, which was, I think, the best answer I've seen to that question oh, thank you. provided thank by you. anyone. I mean that genuinely. And so I was wondering if you could, you could answer that question here. How do you manage millennials? Um, so yeah, exactly the same way as you manage anyone else. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense this, this whole sort of, you know, just assuming that this catch all term for millennials is obviously the, a certain age group, generation X, babies, boomers, all the different, uh, they're all individuals and you manage individuals. You don't manage a team, you manage individuals and each one of those people is different. I can find people of Generation Y or Generation X that have the same mindset and the same mentality as 
as millennials do. But I could also find millennials who probably have the same, you know, kind of attitude and outlook as baby boomers. So it's it's this sort of catch-all term that's been used for a certain age bracket. And it doesn't matter. It's all about behaviors and mindset and outlook. And seeking people from different generations is a very positive thing to do for a business. It's been proven in many research that, you know, mixing those different generations together actually creates a very positive culture, very productive as well. So in terms of managing, you manage based on behaviors. And those behaviors are behaviors such as, you know, are you a good communicator? Do you listen? Um, Are you articulate in the way that you talk? Do you demonstrate good safe programming you know are you a good scrum master because of these behaviors that doesn't matter what generation you come from it doesn't matter how old you are it has nothing to do with that it's all about managing individuals and everybody's an individual and everyone's got positives and everyone's got negatives and as a manager you're just literally trying to get that right blend of people working together mostly on their strengths developing their strengths minimizing weaknesses but also you know getting the right blend so that people can can conflict and confront, but in a safe, positive way so we can move forward and improve things. Yeah, one thing I really liked about the post was how you taught, you sort of threw the question back at the questioner and said, if you're asking this question, what you really need to do is ask yourself another question, which is why am I dividing people up into generations like yeah. this in the first place? What is it about me that wants to think that way? And, you know, there's an implication of like, are you being self-indulgent? Is there something that you just haven't really thought through in your relationship to people that you work with in a very fundamental way? I think so. I I think, I think what it is, is, is most managers, uh, particularly this question often comes from managers, you know, I've got a millennial and, and they just want to, they're always on the internet, they're doing this, but it's, it's, it's nonsense. You know, what they're actually saying is I, I have to change but I don't know how to change. And the culture has to change. The culture will always change when you add people, no matter what generation they're from, no matter what, you know, you're adding people to the mix, it's going to be different. The question is, how different do you want to? Where do you want that culture to go to? And you can never be certain. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you can define a culture and then go for it, but you can try and you can add the right people who are going to add to that. And I think what most managers are afraid of is there's this new group of people coming into the workforce that, demand more of a work-life balance um, they demand certain things if you if you go by the stereotypes and what the research seems to show but if you're building a very strong positive culture anyway then you've probably already got people that think that way anyway why would you not want more of a work-life balance or attention to be the right way why would you not want to adopt new technology if it makes you more productive why would you not want to challenge some of the nonsense that happens in some businesses And unfortunately, the management are seeing this new group of people coming in who aren't afraid to ask the questions, who are happy to go to another job if there's another one better down the road. They probably don't have the families and the mortgages that keep some of the older generations in the workplace. And they're just scared, I think. They're scared of how it's going to change, how they're going to change. And they're just saying it's the millennials' fault. And no, it's just the mixture of people in the business. Yeah, that was was part of the answer that I I liked the most was um, uh, a lot of the things that the stereotypical millennial is asking for are entirely reasonable suggestions for <laughs> improvements. Um, Absolutely. When you, yeah. when you talk about nonsense, for example, I mean, I uh, spent some time in the, you know, be at work at nine world, um, commuting on uh, 
often on the Northern Line in London, which for anyone listening yeah. in Calcutta, the Northern <laughs> Line knows what that, that's like. Um, and it, the whole thing just struck me as absolutely ridiculous. Um, I remember one time, uh, I come from one of the few places in the world that has no daylight savings time. Um, oh, right. And so when I moved to London, I just had no inbuilt instincts. I didn't know about fall back and spring forward or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so one day I went to the tube uh, and the platform was absolutely empty. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like something profoundly wrong has happened here. And of course, internally, I immediately, I looked at the clock and it's like, oh, crap. I'm an hour late. And I went to work and there was nothing crucial going on. There was no meeting. There was nothing like that. But I remember being fearful of the consequences of my mistake, which were, of course, nothing yeah. more than a manager, you know, mildly indulging in some recrimination. Um, <laughs> but my commute that morning was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if my boss, who was, you know, a pretty smart guy, but had, had just thought, oh, if I just let my team come in an hour later and leave an hour later at the end of the day, then they're mm. all going to be much happier and much more productive and yeah. they're going to appreciate the decision that I've made. And not just because it's, it's better for them, but because it's actually more reasonable um, to do things that way. And mm. I've often wondered if one of the reasons that a certain type of person finds suggestions for improvements like that so painful is that their own following of the convention was unexamined in the first place. And it's the sort of reminder that they hadn't actually examined this very important principle that they've carried out in their whole working life, that that's, mm -hmm. uh, there's something kind of humiliating about that. And that's, that's where the, yeah, that's where the, the, the sort of bitterness comes from. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very, very probable and very possible. You know, I think, I think also, you know, the conventions and the norms, you know, people, people just adopt to the norms of the teams that they move into, unless they're a very strong character that's, that's happy to, you know, create a bit of a ruckus, you know, um, throw some suggestions out there without fear of, you know, people shouting at them, telling them off, they're just going to go and do what everyone else has done. And if the whole organization has been around for 10, 20, 30 years, they're in the nine to five mentality as it is. But I think what's interesting for me is I've always viewed productivity as, you know, um, there must be a better way of doing this. So instead of working more hours, which is what most managers assume is productivity is, you know, just work extra hours. My view is very much, well, if you work better between six and 10 in the morning, then work between six and 10 in the morning and, and then, you know, take a couple of hours out and then do some work. It's not always easy to implement those things because of, you know, HR and executives and other managers that might not think that's a good idea. But there's always a better way of doing something. And often it is it just a smarter way than it is just throwing more hours at it or going to the office nine to five. And in fact, what we found usually when we do process improvement, is there a better way of doing it? Um, there's usually always a very, very smart way of doing it, or we just don't do the thing we're doing. And, you know, surprisingly, most managers are fearful of that as well. You know, just stop in doing stuff, just do something different. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's the culture, it's the fear, it's, it's all of that. It's, it's a complicated, complicated topic, yeah. And um, when you talk about that, it, that reminds me of a couple of the um, 10 behaviors that you uh, 
talk about in your book, 10 Behaviors of Effective Employees. And one of those is being open-minded. Um, and I was going to ask you, you know, if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by that. And it sounds like you were kind of touching on that in your response just now. Yeah. So there's a, there's a quote from Paul Graham, the, the sort of legendary investor and kind of IT software guru. And he said, be aggressively open-minded because actually, you know, if you're trying to plan and predict everything, you're going to be hugely disappointed because you actually have probably no idea what's going to happen in the next two, three, four, five years. And so being open-minded is super important. Now that doesn't mean that we're open to anything and we'll just, you know, just waste time on ridiculous ideas. And um, being open-minded is about saying, is there a better way of doing this? And what are the options that we have? And have we thought enough about these? So, you know, what people confuse open-mindedness with is let's just go and do this new agile stuff because it's there. Everyone's oh, open-minded. We're going to go and do it. But nobody's questioned whether that's the right thing to do. So you have to get that balance of saying, here's a new way of working. There's some new ideas. There's some people doing some really cool stuff over here. Maybe that would work for us. Let's try it. But let's experiment. Let's make sure that we are doing it for the benefit of the customer. So another one of the behaviors is always thinking about the customer. And again, far too people, far too many people improve things, change things for their own benefit, and it has a detrimental effect for the purpose of the business. So you have to always get that balance right. And I think being open-minded is one of the things that we always look for, always have done is, you know, you know, what new technology are you using? What new ways of working are you doing? You know, what books are you reading? What are you doing in your personal life that's, that's challenging and opening up new directions for you? Because it is one of those, it's, it's nothing worse than sat in a meeting room with somebody who's totally and utterly closed-minded. And I found a phrase on the internet, I found a quote, I can't remember who said it, but you can spot the closed-minded people because their mouth's always open. And I just thought that kind of summed it up quite nicely, actually. You know, closed-minded, we know the answers. We don't need to do anything differently. Yeah, that's funny. I, I, that just, it took me a moment to put it together that you meant when their mouths are always open that they're always talking because I was immediately thinking about a mouth breather, as they're called. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, that, that, that's, a, that's a really good line. Um, what you were talking about there uh, reminded me of a line on your uh, Cultivated Management website about how before, let's say, you make the switch in your team or your company to Agile, you should actually have an understanding of your foundations and the foundations that are in place first. And I was curious, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. What are, what are those foundations and how can you, how would you suggest someone go about examining them? So, I mean, this is, this is really the sort of focus of my uh, sort of new business and the way that, that I'm kind of approaching stuff. And I think moving to HR was one of those moments where I closed the loop on the agile transition. So, you know, when I first joined nine years ago, New Voice Media, we were releasing software every 14 months. I mean, it was huge waterfall projects with massive testing phases. Within about two years, we got it to sort of monthly, fortnightly. And then another couple of uh, years later, we were doing weekly releases consistently. Um, and that was all the business really needed. The customers didn't necessarily need anything more rapid than that. Um, and the journey, if you heard me talking about that, three or four years on the speaking circuit. It was all about the test techniques. It was about agile. It was about test-driven development. It was about CI. It was about DevOps. It was about all those buzzwords. And there's loads of people still confused thinking that that's actually agility. But when I moved out of uh, DevOps and I moved to HR and we achieved the same sorts of principles, we were shipping stuff, we were working in small increments, we were doing agile, 
by most definitions. I had the 360 review of that, and I was able to sort of close it out and go, well, actually, what did we do and reflect on it? And the core thing is, is we released agility. We didn't buy it. We didn't force it. We released it week and month after month after month, learning new things, opening up more ways, removing more friction, constantly releasing more and more agility for us in the business. And how do we do that? Well, actually, it's in two parts. The first part is absolute clarity for the employee. So, you know, the employee knows how they contribute to that success. They know what's expected of them. They know how they're measured. Their manager is giving them feedback based on behaviors, uh, positive behaviors and sometimes negative feedback. And then the other half of that belongs to management. And my view is management should be spending probably 70, 80% of their time fixing the system. So this is solving problems, fixing processes, dealing with communication issues, requirements, whatever, you know, just stuff that unblocks the team. And so you've got two halves. One is the employees need to know what's expected and what the vision and mission is. The other half is the managers need to own the system. They need to fix the problems. They need to do the process improvement. And then they spend a small amount of their time managing people, if there's ever such a thing. And most people have it the wrong way around. So most managers don't set clear visions. Their staff have absolutely no idea how they're measured until the annual performance review. And the managers spend all of their time managing people rather than fixing the processes. And agility can never really thrive in that environment. And you might find the odd example where it does. But genuinely speaking, agility is about removing the friction towards your purpose. If you don't have a purpose, you're not removing the friction you're never really going to achieve agility. And so that's what my sort of focus is, those two parts of that. One's people, one's management. The two combined together with a good, strong purpose. Yeah, you can achieve anything. Um, that reminds me, and I found a chapter, which was originally a blog post in The Social Tester, about how um, a preoccupation with processes still needs to be directed towards the right processes, and you have a striking title for this chapter called planning for when cows attack. <laughs> um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, what you're getting at with that, uh, hilarious, uh, so yeah, I'm trying to think back. That was a long time ago, that post, but, um, I think in a, in a, in a nutshell, it's, it's about, um, this deep rooted belief that if we just sort of plan everything, if we spend our entire time planning with whatever Gantt charts, uh, whatever is your, your tool of choice for planning and documenting everything and thinking about all the risks, that stuff's important. So Agile isn't about throwing that stuff out. But what's important is to realize that as you go down the journey of releasing agility or you know releasing revenue and growing a company, you're going to encounter things that you've never planned for. And actually, if you have the right approach with the staff, um, knowing exactly what's involved, how they're measured, et cetera, what we just talked about, and the managers fixing the processes, what you actually release is stuff that you would never have dreamt of planning. You know, would we have ever put into a plan that we want people to go away after being rejected for a job and saying how amazing that process was? No, we would never have put that into a plan. Would we have put into a plan that we could be releasing software and scaling Agile in a fairly seamless way onboarding 100% year on year? We probably wouldn't have been able to plan what that looked like. But when you focus on the right processes from the perspective of your customers or your candidates or your employees, 
and you improve the process that's causing the most friction, the one that's slowing people down, you get gains that you would never put into a plan. And that post really about, you know, you can plan for all of this stuff, but then when the cows attack and push that poor gentleman into the Thames, um, he, you know, did he plan for that? No, not at all. And that was a true story, by the way. There was a, a herd of cows that surrounded a man and forced him to jump into the Thames. Um, I'm not actually, that story doesn't surprise me. I grew up in, <laughs> I've, I've encountered cows and when a group of them starts moving towards you, um, yeah. it can actually be difficult to get out of the way. <laughs> um, yep. uh, Run away. But, yeah, by coincidence, um, the last question I was going to ask you about, um, your book, 10 behaviors of effective employees was about what you meant when you talked about behaving bravely. And I say it's a coincidence because you've obviously, just done something brave. Um, uh, and mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, about why you've decided to uh, make this change and uh, move out on your own and what, what it is that you're, you're doing. Yeah. So I, I think for me moving out on my own, I think it was one of those decisions where I've been at the company for nine years. We've, I've kind of achieved the things that I personally wanted to achieve in my career. And I've learned a ton. I mean, it was a great place to work, you know, tons and tons of learning, growing and scaling agile, building a team in Poland, all this sort of stuff. It's got all the buzzwords associated to it. It's just been one of those really, really fun journeys. But I think you get to a point with any career where you start to think, if I don't leave now, then I will be here for the next 10 years because you just get sort of, you get stable and you get comfortable and, you know, the bills are getting paid and everything's going the way it should do. Um, so about six months ago, I thought, you know what, this is, this is something I have to do. I have to go and see if I can build my own business, if I can help other people achieve greatness in what they're trying to do. And I've always had this dream of running my own business, you know, and, and if I don't do it now, I'm sort of, you know, midlife age. It's one of those times where I got this opportunity. We squirreled away some money to give us a runway. And, you know, this is an opportunity to try and do something different. And interestingly, I think what happened when I pulled the cord, as I, I call it, and just, you know, one day just that was it. I'm announcing I'm off. That's it. I'm out. Um, the phone sort of lit up and lots of opportunities have popped up. And again, it's that it, it's that sort of, you know, being brave in what you're trying to do. Do you just go and get another job or do you stick to what you're trying to achieve and, and run the risk that actually come, you know, March next year? I might have to go back and get another job because this won't have worked. <laughs> um, so it's one of those things. But I think I didn't want to get to the point in my life where I was unable to try and do these things without having had a go. And I think that's the kind of iterative try, fail, see what happens, learn from it, and just keep moving forwards. Well, uh, best of luck. Uh, Thank with you. This, with this move. Um, uh, I guess it's kind of anticlimactic, um, but at the end of these interviews, um, uh, I always like to ask a couple of questions about self-publishing um, uh, uh, for the benefit of those listening who, who are interested in, in self-publishing themselves. Um, and obviously you've, you've done a lot of the right things by conference speaking and, um, uh, blogging a lot and stuff like that, but you've also decided to, um, write books. And I was wondering, um, what it was, was there anything in particular that, that, that sort of got you started doing books? Um, or like, I, I believe probably your first one was the educated parent brain book. Um, uh, was there something specific you're like, like strategic about now I should get into 
books or was it just something you fell into because you're always writing and being productive? Yeah, I think writing for me is a very important um, aspect of my, my day. So um, even when I wasn't really blogging, I'd sit down and try and write a thousand words a day. Just one of those things, first thing in the morning, just before everyone else is up and write. And I think one interesting thing happened was that the more you blog and the more you get an audience, the the harder it actually becomes to blog because you get more eyes on it. You've got more criticisms. You've got more opportunities to completely make a mess of it. And so for me, blogging became this sort of like very fearful kind of like, oh, I'm going to hit publish what kind of fallout is going to happen from this? Not that there was ever really anything controversial, but people tend to get quite angry about various different things, particularly around Agile. And it lost that kind of enthusiasm for it. It was sort of like, oh, really? Um, But I was still writing. I was still generating a ton of content. And from there, it just felt like the right time. And I think tools like LeanPub, for example, have have kind of given self-publishers the the breaking down of the barriers that they needed to write a book so before you had to basically either create a pdf and sell it on your own website or you know try and sell it through somewhere else or give it away for free and amazon's still a little bit daunting for a lot of people publishing straight onto the amazon platform but tools like leanpub came along and said well here you go work in dropbox work in text files spin it up publish it you don't even have to say it's 100 complete so you've got an opportunity to go and change it and iterate and get feedback and it broke down the barriers and, and for me leanpub was one of those exciting new tool to use in the whole self-publishing world um, and i've been publishing for years all sorts of different stuff but really the books came about because there was now a platform that i could use without having to get a publishing deal and yeah, it's been it's been brilliant and enjoying the process of it. I've got a couple of books up on Amazon as well that aren't on LeanPub and exploring it, a couple of other platforms and what have you. But really, LeanPub took that barrier away. And one of the books, so you want to be a scrum master, was actually written as during a hackathon. So while the devs were hacking away with code and new voice media, the scrum masters, testers, and a couple of other people that, that didn't really spend their time coding came together to create that book. And we did it in LeanPub. So, you know, we had a Trello board with all the articles going through and then shared Dropbox folder and we were contributing. And literally it was a day and a half and we managed to write a book. And that's the power, I think, of self-publishing. That's what appeals to me. And I think it's great for anyone that wants to write books. The, you know, now is the time to get doing that stuff. Yeah, thanks for that great uh, – well, thanks for the kind words. Um, but also thanks for that great description of how things have changed in the last few years, um, just in the last few years as, as self-publishing tools have evolved um, and attitudes towards it have evolved as well. Um, my last question is um, – if there were one thing about LeanPub that we could build for you, or if there were one thing that we could fix for you, what would that thing <laughs> be? Oh, that's a, that's a really tough question to ask. I think, I think at the moment, um, having a free option. So I noticed that now to create a book, there seems to be a price. I think it was $58 when I looked the other day. I think it varies depending on how many books you published with you. Um, but sometimes I want to publish a book on LeanPub that I don't want to sell. And so I think, unless I may have missed an option, and you can correct me, feel free to do so. I think a kind of light version where here's one version where you want to publish and you actually want to sell the book. But actually, you know, I think if the free model came back in some way, shape, or form with maybe a limited production or limited publications, you might start to attract people that are outside of the technology world because 
uh, LeanPub's a great platform and you know, you've got parents, you've got food bloggers, you've got all these people, but they're not publishing books very often on LeanPub. And I think that barrier of that price could be something that would attract me to publish a lot more free books, smaller books, short pamphlet type stuff, maybe some zines, maybe that kind of stuff. That for me would be a, a back to how it was a few years ago and keep that paid model if you want to generate some revenue from it. Yeah, thanks very much for that. That's a really excellent um, feedback. Um, the, the decision we made about just over a year ago now to start charging people to create Lean Pub books was, you know, one of the top three decisions we've ever made. Um, and it's something we thought about a great deal. Uh, there's a very long post about it that you can read if you're interested. Yeah. In that decision. <laughs> um, uh, and so the way it works is that currently, um, if you want to create a new Lean Pub book, it's $99 US. Um, I believe if you've sold more than $1,000 worth of if you've earned more than a thousand dollars in royalties as an author, then that price goes down to forty nine dollars per book. Okay. And if yeah. you've earned more than ten thousand dollars in royalties, it goes down to zero per book. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, we're going to be introducing um, more options. Uh, one of which is well, we're going to be introducing you know uh, free trials. Um, which is, you know, a pretty standard thing to have when you're doing what we do or offering a product like we offer. Mm. So that's been a long time coming. We're very open-minded about pricing and we're definitely going to be iterating, you know, over time. Um, sure. So it's possible, for example, that what you're just, so for example, like, well, so people who are listening, LeanPub has a variable pricing model. So any LeanPub book can actually be set with a minimum price of free. Um, and then people can actually still pay for it if they want to. Um, which sort of complicates the example you're describing a little mm. bit. Um, we do have, if you contact us, we can actually, there's a setting we have that says no payments, um, which is, I think, what you're describing about an, like an only, an exclusively free book, which we actually yeah. developed um, because someone who had had um, funding from an American government agency to do scientific research basically wanted to publish the results on LeanPub and they're like, well, mm -hmm. we can't, but we can't accept payment for it. So we're, we're familiar with sure. that one version of that, of that case. Um, and yeah, that's definitely something that, um, what you suggested is definitely something I'll bring up. Uh, I just think, you, you know, kind of, if this is your first book, you, you're almost kind of like, am I going to make that money back? <laughs> and, and so I, I can imagine a few people landing on the page going, Oh, actually, you know, I, I don't know whether this will sell any copies. So, um, one, one thing I do feel a little bit safe adding at the end of a long, uh, interview, um, about the matter of pricing is that whatever the level is, as soon as you char start charging money for something, there is actually a positive aspect to the way it makes people decide whether or not they really want to do what they're about to do. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to be very diplomatic in the way I'm, I'm framing yeah. this, but if writing a book is, um, a commitment, mm. um, and by introducing effectively a kind of paywall, um, that actually does change the nature of the relationship that people have towards what they're doing when they're on lean pub. Yeah, um, that's true. So yeah, you get that. And that it, commitment to finish it, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And and in particular, um, uh, it changes the general quality of the books on the bookstore. Mm. 
which is very much a kind of in the weeds kind of thing. But, you know, if you work really hard on your book, and by the way, we encourage people to, you know, anybody who's interested in writing, get, get started. You can publish mm. a book when you're, you know, two or three chapters in, um, you know, give, give it a try. Um, but, you know, what I was about to say was, you know, if you work really hard on your book, like you can maybe for years and maybe it reflects a lifetime of experience in some area that you really care about, you start to care about what book yours is presented mm. next to in a bookstore. Yeah, um, maybe not necessarily, but you know, you, you might, yeah. you might start doing that. And so that's just a very, one of, one of just one facet of the complex, mm -hmm. you know, gem of our decision to introduce yeah. uh, a, a price to making a link yeah. book. Yeah, I mean, I, I for one, I, I you know, that, that's that's a price I'm happy to pay, you know, based on obviously what you've you've just said. Um, but there are those books that I that are, I don't really want to charge for, and you kind of like, you know, this this is a free book. I, you know, I wrote one the other day about the the process improvement of the recruitment process, and it ended up being nineteen thousand words, which is, you know, technically a book. It started off as a blog post, but I don't know whether that's enough to charge people for it, but. At the same time, you know, I want to try and get it distributed as a book. So, yeah. So there's those interesting dilemmas. It's always a challenge, isn't it? Always a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one just before we go. There was one um, person in particular who was um, creating um, dozens of books of Japanese fairy tales, I believe. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, when we introduced our pricing, I think it was that person who had a tweet with a, you know, crying face emoji in it and you know i was in particular sensitive to you know there are certain types of when we made that decision there are definitely types of projects that are now mm -hmm. that are totally awesome that are now incompatible with our pricing model and that is definitely something that we'll be iterating on and thinking about yeah. as we go forward i mean that that decision is not set in stone and it's not yeah or it's not set in stone the way the precise way we've done it to begin with yeah yeah, that's what I like about your organization. I mean, that's what I like. It's that sort of iterate through it and see what works, see what happens and, you know, build new features. It's spot on. I know it's also, you've got Jerry Weinberg's collection of books on there now, which is very positive. So that's good. Yeah. We're pretty, we're pretty happy about that. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, Rob, um, thank you very much for taking the time in the evening, uh, to do this. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah. And thanks for, uh, being a lean pub author. Thank you. And thanks for your platform.